So first question we have, must we chant with sound? Is it okay to chant in the heart? Well, sound, chanting with sound adds a lot more to it because with chanting with sound you have to use your body, um, use body consciousness, use body energy, um, use breath, breath energy, um, and use hearing consciousness. So you've made it three or four times more potent than if you just chant in your heart. So you're chanting with your body, you get to uh, the body to slow down and stabilize and feel the effects in the bones and to moderate the breathing, get the throat to open, um, and then use the whole experience for a, a kind of a, it's like almost like a subtle body massage internally. You can feel certain vibrations occur within the body that have a healing effect, have a steadying effect, resonant effect. Um, and when you're listening, so your listening consciousness has to open up and that gives you a lovely wide open state to it. So that adds much more to it than if you just silently intone it. What is Buddhism's view on healing with energy? For example, Reiki. Well, there isn't really a Buddhist view um, on many things. The different Buddhists have different views. The Buddha's primary view was, you know, suffering and the ending of it. And that's his main focus, right view, recognizing cause and effect, what we do has effects, and recognizing that, and then developing meditations whereby, by applying careful attention and steadying the energy in the body and the mind, the heart could slip out of its defilements and obstacles. And so that's the, that's the standard um, Buddhist view. And Reiki is something that's developed since then. Um, and I don't, I know very little about it. So essentially, um, it's like, you know, many things. It, it's, if it's conducted with the right view and with ethical sense and with uh, skill, it's good. You know, there are many, many things that have developed since the time of the Buddha. You just have to look at whether they fit in with what the Buddha was teaching or not. Does it lead to the ending of suffering? Um, is it skillful, right intention, right view, then um, it's okay. You can do that. That's fine. The person talks about attending to what feels like a blockage at the roof of the mouth. This person has been experiencing this for a few years. As if the breath is restricted from moving up higher into the head. In other words, up into the skull from beyond the roof of the mouth. This seems to create pressure in the sinuses. Below the eyes, keeps the eyes constricted. The instruction is typically to relax the tongue, but the tongue seems to have a a mind of its own will often push against the roof of the mouth, apparently in the attempt to create space. 
you often instruct don't go into the tense place. And I wonder if I should be repeatedly shifting attention away from this problem area to the whole body with an attitude of acceptance, let it go, leave it be. That's what I suggested, yeah. Before you can attend to difficult areas, you have to have a very uh, familiar and uh, full access to non-problematic areas. So most of your practice should be about finding the non-problematic areas of your body, backs of your knees, soles of your feet, palms of hands, um, back, but probably it folds the feet and palms of the hands are generally good. Most of the um, obstacles occur naturally where we are more emotionally charged. So in the abdomen, where there's the abdominal, it's to do with fear. Fear and def that tightens up with fear, so there can be a lot of fear around. It's a, it's a, it's quite common in the social domain to be a lot of anxiety or uncertainty, or so the stomach, the, the abdominal area can be quite tight. Chest area is often to do with uh, grief or gets blocked. We're trying to hold back the overwhelmed feeling of grief and the head area. Uh, expression often maybe associated with rage, frustration, and things like this. Um, so just in, you know, because you recognise what what the face is about, it's about expressing things, isn't it? You know, it's, most of the muscles there are there to create signals to other people. So it's where you really want to let something be known. It comes into your face. Now, with fear, you don't really want to let people know that. But with rage, you definitely do. <laughs> like, or, of course, you know, we laugh, face lights up. So it's often the most conscious signal we're giving to others comes through the face. So, um, now, it can be that there's a particular um, experience one doesn't want to communicate that would come up into the face, and therefore it's a sort of reflex block. It's because, for example... Um, anger is not socially acceptable, uh, particularly if these are, say, you know, childhood things where you shouldn't be, you know, you, you are not able to express anger because you be punished. Who knows? But um, so this this sense of it's a reflex, uh, censoring or stopping or blocking of particular energy being made manifest. Now you can't overcome reflexes. Reflexes are much deep, more deeply ingrained than your willpower. Willpower is something that's conscious and voluntary. Reflex is involuntary. The involuntary is more deeply embedded than the voluntary. So um, you can't overcome that with willpower. But what helps is you find a place where it's comfortable and open. You get very familiar with that and you feel that area in your body, your mind dwells in that. The nature of mind is that it's able to attend to a particular quality and absorb it. It's an absorption system. So for example, if we attend to the sign of fear, something frightening, the mind becomes completely frightened and starts to create paranoia and anxiety. It doesn't notice the non-frightening. Yeah. 
when we feel, uh, say, something um, that arouses passion, we see the attractive aspect of it, we don't see the unattractive. The mind completely absorbs into that. You know, it tends to do that. Uh, now you can work that the other way. If the mind, you tend to a place where the mind, with a sense of safety and comfort and ease, the mind picks up that quality, absorbs into that. That's the strategy called jhana, absorption. And so the Buddha very much encouraged this experience. It, jhana, jayati, bhikkhuwe, please cultivate this absorbing. And uh, it's an embodied experience where you find these comfortable, safe, benevolent places and you bring that in. So the mind becomes richly endowed with that. Now, this means then at a certain point it becomes so so enriched that you can attend to difficult areas and it's as if the benevolence that speak of the body, the, the chitta has absorbed, begins to work upon difficult places. Hmm. Just as if you put, uh, say, a grain of salt into a glass of water, the salt will sort of dissolve and you won't taste it, it'll be dissolved, something like that. Um, but you can see in this way, we, if you use that image, you don't press the water into the salt, you don't try to break the salt open, you drop the salt into the big vessel of, of water. Similarly, you get that big vessel of a comfortable feeling through your body by noticing where it is and then you begin to stand in that, sit in that, walk in that and then where's that difficult piece and just there and can I hold my, my mind in that comfortable place as I touch into these less comfortable areas and very much like an invitation rather than a, too much action to do it's more like an invitation. Is it ready to receive this? Often locked up areas, there's a strange um, somatic um, psychology, which means they tend to exclude themselves from the rest of the body. They, they're kind of shut down and they, they close off, or the body closes off access to the rest of the body. They become like nuggets stuck within the body's field. So again, you can't break that, but you do say, oh, well, around here, you know, it may be a little difficult in the roof of the mouth, but let's go feel around down there in the center of the chest. And, and then here's yeah, pretty good. So let's just sort of start to open and connect to this more difficult place, just slightly. Hello, here we are. You know, if you want to be, that's fine. And just see if there can be some shifting of energy from the difficult place, you know, just slightly. You know, like you just get to the edge of it. As long as you can sustain awareness of the more comfortable place, an open place, then you just nudge against the more difficult area with a sort of like an invitation. Also note the mental tone. Where is the mental tone? Is it like a panic? Is it agitated? Is it, I don't know, you know, is it sharp, harsh, uh, crushed? What's it feel? What's the mental tone? If it had a voice, what would it say? So there's a lot of investigation. It can be cultivated around that. Um, um, so it's not just the, you know, push a button, make it go away. It's very much entering into a relationship and listening and learning and seeing what will unfold in an open way. But you do have to have the resource of that 
grounded, comfortable, open place to that's your that should be your your foundation. Yeah. And you know, I wouldn't get too obsessive about it, so you know, I wouldn't say that's what you've got to do every time you sit down. It's you know, don't make too much of a project out of it. Um, it's been there for years. Okay, it's just you know, develop other meditations and then occasionally just cultivate coming to the body and how is that now? What makes it stronger? What makes it weaker? When is it more prominent? Another questioner asks, when doing standing formation in the form you just taught, if we're feeling intense anxiety or, or aversion within the body, what do you recommend? Well, um, are you sure it's anxiety? Hmm? How is anxiety? That's it. Anxiety is an emotion, right? How does that manifest in the body? Is it gripping, flurrying, want to go away, restless, want to shift out of this, don't feel stable, don't feel solid, uh, not knowing, how am I? Well, then it's good to go to your feet. Your feet are generally not anxious, they're grounded. So establish the stable aspect of the form, which is from the feet through the spine to the crown of the head. So you try to get the whole thing as a stable uh, presence. And yeah, as I mentioned, and then let your breathing flow. If you're holding that awareness from as best you can, soles of the feet, maybe the stomach, the abdomen, behind the throat, head, you may not get all of it, you get some sense of, yeah, if I was standing on a, on a narrow plank, you know, that would light up, that would be my balancing point, you know, and realise if I, I make sure that all those pieces were upright, so you find this balance point, that's why standing is useful for that. The balance point is when the least amount of muscles are needed. So, you know, chest, uh, fingers, face can relax, belly can relax. The least muscles are needed. When the least muscles are needed, the chances are that the various energies that the muscle, muscle tension has suppressed will start to manifest. Yeah, that is what occurs is that the somatic disturbance um, can be closed through muscular tension, often in the abdomen, but also around the throat, the chest, these areas kind of hold it down, hold it back. So once you come into standing and you're able to relax these areas, then some of this stuff starts to come to the surface, which, you know, it's not so comfortable, but perhaps that's the way it has to be. If you want to clean things out, maybe you've got to, you know, clean things out. If you can't, if it's too much, Stop doing it, you know, sit down, go do some walking. Um, but if you can, bear with it without contracting. Uh, then try to maintain the whole axis and also the space around you as open and let these waves of energy roll through.
as they roll through, they will almost certainly try to pull you into a contracted form. They will almost certainly try to pull you off your feet. They will take your feet away from you. You'll feel very much that you've got to be up here holding it together. Uh, and and that, that's the trap because um, that's the way you close it down. You go to your feet, you don't close it down. And of course you get these waves of disturbance. If it was very uncomfortable, you can slightly move very deep breath out and uh, keep acknowledging around me the space so it's not just the verbal acknowledgement if your body moves through space it knows the space so there's no point saying yeah everything's fine and spacious because that's just the word to move freely and lightly with no pressure the body knows it's in space because it feels it so a little bit of movement is useful no point saying you're very stable because that's just a bunch of words too. If you've got your feet on the ground, firmly planted on the ground, and your knees are slightly bent, your body knows you're stable, right? You've got to let the body know it, not just throw some ideas at it. Um, and the idea, the idea you shouldn't be anxious is also not, not valid. There's no point doing shoulds at, at feelings. You know, throwing a should at it doesn't do you any good. It's what it is, and uh, it's quite normal. On any level, really, life is uncertain. You know, you don't know. You don't know. But you, what you can know is, right now, feet there, yeah. back is there, shoulder relax, you know that. Crown of the head's there, space, right now, it's okay. That's all I need to know. So you keep doing this to rebuff the pull of anxiety, aversion, escape, let me close down, get out of here. Um, so aversion is mostly associated with the, the abdominal region of the body. So, you know, breathing is good too, from the belly. Don't get too intense about it all though, because that, you know, this is not something you can just knock out in 30 minutes or a couple of days. It's something that you have to kind of gently, time and time again, get used to it, familiar with it, till the body really learns it. Imagine like what it takes to ride a bike or learn to swim. You don't just do it. You've got to fall over and uh, get some water and then try again. But after a while, you, you can you can be learnt. The body can learn it. And there's another question. Hope some of this is useful. And thank you for asking because other people, you know, they can also benefit from these questions during longer sitting meditation. The upper body at times sways and moves on its own for some time and stops. It repeats again after a while. Appreciate your insights on this phenomenon. And also, should I deliberately stop the swaying, i.e. sit still? So if the upper body sways, what happens to the lower body? Uh, what happens to the knees or the thighs or the feet? Mm. Are they connected? Maybe if you stood up, that would help. 
it's quite common for body to have lots of disconnections in it and as I suggested one of the primary areas of disconnection is at the uh, hip level where we, the body folds right into this into this chair position legs become redundant so you get a kind of they drop away energetically and uh, you know they are perform different functions legs move you around and upper body is is your kind of um, your presentation is who you are and it gets more detail as you go up till the face is really the big showcase of what you are now you want to connect completely to the lower body also to the back and then if the body is integrated it will tend to self-stabilize so I'd recommend standing. I wouldn't recommend just staying with and accepting swaying because it doesn't stop. You know, it's not it's like a like a trapped nerve. And it's not doing it's not kind of working anything out, it's just stuck. I think my jaw is misaligned, causes misalignment in the energy running through my face. If I can't physically correct this, how can I keep the energy stable? keeps scrunching my face well I think I've sort of said what I can go from the uh, local problem to the global non-problem yeah. so generally any given time is only you know 10% of your body is malfunctioning <laughs> and so there's a good 90% of it's ticking over okay so really focus on the 90% get that up there make that your foreground and then see if you can open to these other areas we have this kind of default that if there's a problem we want to go into it and solve it and it attracts our attention like the thorn that you get in your finger that finger becomes the only part of your body well this is just a, a habit of attention and we want to not go into local details uh, you want to go into the global perspective and often that would tend to cause the local detail to just start to ease out because it means that the energy that's locked up in this difficult area then is subsumed into the entire form. Do you please speak to meditation when experiencing pain in the body? Well, hmm, have you asked anyone else about this? It's pretty fundamental. And you know you'll get the answers well. Bear with it. And then if it gets too uncomfortable, change your position. If it's a pain associated with sitting. If it's a pain associated with like a toothache, and there's nothing to do with a particular meditation posture, but uh, ordinary pain, stomach ache, pain, headache, then, um, as I said before, go to the whole body and see that the painful area is only 5-10% of that. That helps you get you much more balanced perspective and the mind is no longer so uh, pressed by it. Like when you focus, when you focus on pain, it's like you push your mind right into pain. That's what you do. That's what that's what attention does. It pushes your mind 
your sensitive heart gets pushed, directed straight at what you're attending to, right? Your your attentive, receptive heart, attention, places your receptive, attentive heart on an object. If the object is pain, you're just shoving your heart straight into a a barbed wire. (laughs) What are you... You know, not a good idea. <laughs> so, what do you do? Do you kind of run away? No, essentially, you you try to attend to the the non-painful. Mm-hmm. And find your foundation there. You say, oh, this painful piece up in my hip. But my knee is okay. Foot is okay. Arm is okay. Mm-hmm. Maintain awareness of the whole thing. Get it in perspective. The mind is then less challenged hard is less challenged what you give attention to becomes the topic of your heart so then you get into a whole kind of pain topic and uh, without any real resolution when you know you can cultivate uh, witnessing pain like actually visualizing pieces of your body with on fire or something like that or with knives sticking in them or being crushed by rocks whatever, or being strangled whatever it feels like and the, because the visual sense unlike the tactile sense the visual sense doesn't have any feeling to it and it's feeling that's the problem so if you if you're really uh, almost stepping back from feeling and witnessing it as a visual thing, it helps to take some of the pressure off the mind to resolve it. Mm. And of course, there's everything else that you do. Loving kindness, um, changing position, exercise, um, you know, you name it. Mm. If it's psychological pain, then uh, this is different. Mm. Psychological pain, you want to um, investigate it with a mind of goodwill, not get rid of it, but investigate what's it based upon, based upon favouring something and opposing something. I do not like blame, therefore blame gives me pain. If I, I do not like being accused, therefore being accused gives me pain. But if I didn't have the dislike of it, <laughs> I w- it wouldn't get me. It would just be somebody talking. Hmm? What makes it yours is your reaction of defending yourself from it. It means you enter into an engaged relationship with something that's mentally, emotionally, psychologically uncomfortable. Um, and perhaps the sense of you don't want to enter an engaged relationship with it. You want to see it, witness it, but you're not owning it. If you defend yourself from it, then you're engaging with it. If you blame somebody else for it, then you're engaging with it. If you blame yourself for it, you're engaging with it. If you wonder why it's like this, you're engaging with it. If you just notice there is blame, there is accusation, there is this, there is that, Everybody gets this. It's a phenomenon. Feels like this. Then there's no engagement. 
and uh, that it doesn't sink in. Regret, painful over your own experiences, then uh, this is something to look at with dispassion. What can I learn about this? So different kinds of pain. There could be pain without this physical pain doesn't have to necessarily be associated with suffering. It could be equanimity. Okay. Disorientation, try to relax, feel the whole body, still some pull into thoughts and figuring out how I should have handled a bad situation at work, etc. And feeling bad that there is no situation. But to keep going back to the light energy spaces in the body, connected to ground and space around, does feel light. And hooks those thoughts and emotions. A sense of lightness and peace that comes with accepting it all as part of this body energy. But there's also a sense of feeling lost at times, feels disoriented. Nothing's resolved. Just be with it. I wonder what's trying to be resolved, the bad situation at work. Well, you can't resolve the bad situation at work, except if you're at work in the bad situation. What you can resolve is feeling what you're feeling now. Um, like impotent or disappointed or whatever you're feeling now or feeling you didn't do good enough so really know what what is being experienced right now yeah for example we may assume there should be an answer perhaps there isn't an answer and so we go oh, I'm, I, what I'm doing now I'm waiting for an answer. That has to be resolved. That sense of waiting for an answer has to be resolved because maybe there isn't one. If there was one, it would happen. I'm open. Perhaps there is one, perhaps there isn't one. Right now, I don't see it. So, that's, right now I've resolved that. I'm not waiting for it, I'm not waiting for an answer. When I go to work in this open state, it may be that things will slip into place. But just because we remember a situation doesn't mean that we're actually living that situation. What we're living in, we're living the memory of the situation yeah, and what that memory brings up. So really to know what you, you know, what is the point that you can um, bring your awareness onto. The question asks, I believe I heard you say that what we think is as important as what we say. I'm confused. Because my understanding has been that the mind thinks, creates papancha, and that we shouldn't take thoughts too seriously. We should let them go by and not take our thoughts personally as they are a result of conditioning. Could you talk about that? Mm -hmm. If you take thoughts personally, then they have an effect 
uh, on how you experience yourself. If you take thoughts personally, then you experience yourself in line with those thoughts. Right? So if you're thinking about buildings or something, then you become a builder. If you're thinking about a problem with another person, you become somebody who has a problem with that person. If you're thinking about a particular habit you have, then you become that person who has the habit. So um, we should take your thinking with a sense, not with a sense, seriously, because it does does tend to define you. Um, you become the subject of the thought, the one who owns has the thought. Yeah. So letting them go by is, yeah, they do go by. In fact, you can't stop them from going by. They do move along. But the underlying emotion that they run on um, tends to not be resolved. It still it brings up another lot of thoughts. So you want to actually huh, take them seriously, but not take them personally. So, okay, this is a thinking process. Hmm, hmm, I accept the fact that the mind is thinking. It's doing its thing. It's thinking thing. Hmm. What's the emotional current of that thought? Is it restless? Is it happy? Is it eager? Excited? Irritated? Grumpy? Anxious? That's the general tone of that train of thoughts. So then you, you're not taking it personally, but you're, you're investigating it. And you're investigating the emotional underpinning of that which then okay uh, if you're restless there's a restlessness let's not take restlessness personally there is restlessness so to not take it personally you do the opposite of thinking about it you feel this restlessness and then how does that feel my body feels jittery i feel uncomfortable i want to do this that and the other okay, what's that about um, What's needed? What's needed? What's needed? What does it need? It needs some comfort, stability. Not from out there, but within your body, within your embodiment, within your mind and heart. So then you're able to resolve the underlying tendency of thinking. Now, say... What you think is as important as what we say, because what we think sooner or later conditions either what we say or the way that we speak. And other people pick it up. So we have karma and affecting others. Now what we say can of course be particular things we talk about, um, but more often it's the, the thing that affects people is the emotional energy that, that the thought rests upon you. We bring that emotional energy, that um, heart energy, onto another person. And it can be encouraging, cheerful, or insensitive, uh, domineering, you know, kinds of things, bullying, bossy, or just not really taking into account that somebody else is listening. And how is that for them?
You know? So then if you do check your speech, then, oh, wait a minute, I've got to reframe that thought. That, you know, I do feel like I really want this to get done quickly. But if I start jabbering about, hurry up and get this done, the person's liable to get agitated. So I need to find a way to express that in a different way. And as I do that, I think, actually, well, maybe it doesn't need to be done. Perhaps it's just something I'd like to have done. And I, I feel quite strongly I'd like to have it done. But hmm, maybe it's not that important. So I say, there's a particular thing that I have some concerns about. Can I mention it to you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, da, da, da. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I think we could do that. So then you've, you've, in a way, by checking your speech, you've checked your thought habit. By checking your thought habit, you've checked into your emotional habit. So that's the good work. Yeah. That's good work. Check your emotional habit and your emotional attitudes. You know, it's hard to say, I really want this to be done, I can't stand this for another minute, this is really good. Wait a minute. Don't say that. Just say, I feel really concerned and this is bothering me. Okay, that's better. Concerned, it's bothering me. What's bothering you? Well, I want. Yeah, that's. A, then you, once you get to the emotional current, it's quite possible to. Oh, well, actually, it doesn't matter that much. <laughs> you know, you get it in perspective. And so it's, it's important to address the, the emotional underpinning of thought, which we just shoot it out. It's um, problematic. None of that's about taking it personally, but it is recognising there, there are certain consequences of careless speech and careless thought. Uh, and there are certain benefits, immense benefits, from mindful speech and mindful thought, an enormous learning process of investigating speech and thought and where it's coming from and getting right into the impulses in the heart and really checking out, is that true, is that real, or is it just what I want? Okay fundamentally true, it's just so then you're able to let go of it or moderate it. Hmm. How does one cultivate absorption? To be able to cultivate the benevolence needed to be with very intense emotions that shortcut intentions and will. Well, Mm. <laughs> absorb into the body body doesn't have uh, ill will uh, absorb into the stability of the body which is not affected by ill will such as the spine, the feet the presence of the body breathing in and out and if it is affected by ill will then move away from the air that's affected by ill will and move to an area that's not affected by your will and absorb into it as you as you collect yourself around that maintain an overall sense of equanimous friendliness acceptance of aspects of you of your system are aversive and prickly and so on and willful but 
you don't have to go into that. So you absorb into the non-ill will. Um, that's how you do it. Uh, and if that means chanting, uh, you know, so chanting, um, walking, breathing, yes, keep up. So it's not suppressing ill will, it's just a matter of finding, a, establishing a proper foundation from which you're not constantly going into it and, and intensifying it. So even the efforts to negate ill will have a tar baby effect. You know, you stick your hand out, you get stuck to it. So it's best just to withdraw from ill will. And then you can also investigate, you know, this is uncomfortable. Um, why to keep doing this? Um, what's it about? What's it based upon? Um, because it's generally based upon threat of some kind. What's being threatened? Is it truly threatened? Is it just another tangled up emotion? Mm. So but you've got to find a place where you can investigate these things from a firm foundation. And that gives rise to insight. Firm foundation is absorption in calm, steadiness, and that makes insight into these conditions possible. Um, insight is the one that releases. Um, samatha is the aspect that builds up the foundation that makes insight possible. So we're not just endlessly spinning out into our stuff. But at the same time, we do need to meet it so that it can be un. It's based upon wrong views and memories and misperceptions. So they need to be revealed and, and, and eliminated or relinquished. Is the main meal of the day just before noon? What is a good time for the first meal of the day? I would imagine hunger becomes a meditation as well. Of course, hungry... Being hungry is good. Um, don't want to be constantly hungry, but it, it's a body saying, yep, finish that, ready for the next shot, <laughs> let you know. Uh, so you don't want to eat until you're hungry, really, because uh, the body's not ready for it. If you take this, if you're trying to use the time thing, then eating before noon, technically it means that this when the sun is at the highest point in the sky. Uh, in some countries like Britain, where you don't always get the sun, you don't really know because it's just a sort of grey, you know, ambient flush. <laughs> you never quite know where the sun is. So we, t we generally use the clock, 12 o'clock, or we, it's one o'clock in the British summertime. So you can use clock time. The monastic standard is dawn. You don't eat before dawn. So between dawn and noon, you can eat once or twice if you like. Um, probably twice is better because then you just eat more. You don't get ravenous and then overeat. You just try to eat moderately. Um, and then hunger is something you experience. And it's just it's not that bad, really. It's just we tend to make it bad because we're not used to it or we feel we've got to, we've got to satisfy it. But... Uh, no, you don't have to. It's just part of life. And, um, and often the body begins to 
metabolism starts to change so you don't feel so hungry i don't feel hungry very often not really hungry just you know i'm ready for the meal but i'm not belly's not screaming <laughs> okay There are a few more questions, but I think I think that's enough for t today. So whatever has been useful, thank you for your questions, and I'll keep these other ones and try to get back to them. There, you know, some classic stuff there: the inner tyrant, the inner critic. Well, that's a good one. We'll get round to her or him in due course. <laughs>